Welcome to the DEI Discussions podcast series. This is the Humans of Fintech chapter, and we are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges, and walk the talk for change across the entire financial technology industry. Today, we are joined by CJ Barton, COO of Wealth Kernel. CJ is here to share how they walk the talk for inclusion in our sector and what more they want done. CJ, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Nadia. It's very good to be here. So a lovely start would be to tell us all about Wealth Kernel. Sure. So Wealth Kernel has been in existence for uh, just over eight years. Um, it's a fintech API company, um, and the focus of the business is trying to democratize the marketplace and allow other firms to more easily access brokerage, custody, and top-class APIs that allow them to attach their apps or their websites and give their customers a positive and seamless experience. We focus, our focus is quite broad, but one of the things that we are passionate about is looking at smaller fintech firms that can use our technology, ones that are focusing on perhaps less traditional demographics than usual investment firms. For example, one of the companies that uses our software is an Islamic finance firm. Another is focused on marketing to people from West African nations. We've also have and had have like ESG firm, firms focused on the environment as well. So while you know, we're, we're, we're very happy to promote ourselves to anyone who wants to use our, our technology, there is a focus there of, of who are the people in society who are essentially cut out of the investment sphere and what are the ways that we can bring them in and give them access to that. We have seen over the past 100 years plus, really, as kind of investment has become a bigger and bigger part of the global the, the way the global economy fits together, there has been disparities have increased significantly. And one of the ways that is not talked about so much as a way of trying to bring those disparities down, down, back, back down a little bit is by giving people who don't invest, who are never taught about investments, whose parents didn't invest, who's, who have no social circle who does, bringing them in and saying that there are ways for you to access the global financial marketplace, which doesn't mean you have to be a multimillionaire to start with. It doesn't mean you've got to have a trust fund. You can start with, if you've got a hundred pounds that you obviously do not need, you've got your savings, you've got your, you haven't got debt, et cetera. But if you've got some money that you don't necessarily need, that you might never need, but you can put it somewhere, there are ways of engaging with that. And there's other, there's other firms out there doing the same, but our, our focus has been if we can empower those companies that want to engage with those areas, we can make it cheap and cost effective for them to that, scratch that, scratch the cheap bit. We can make it cost effective for them to, to be able to go out there and market. We're a scalable firm, so obviously everything we do, we're trying to replicate and one of our big focuses right from the very start is have a remote culture. So we have people working for us all across the UK. We have people in Spain, we have people in India and a few other people across Europe as well. Um, and that we intend to expand upon as we grow. Um, so when we market a role, theoretically, anyone can apply for it. And we will try and make that 
make that role accessible to as many people as possible. So it's not the fact that you've got to live in a certain catchment area of an office in order to work for us. And I have a feeling this word accessibility is going to be a theme of this and in all its forms, which, which is very exciting. Um, before we get into more of that, let's go back a bit and share a bit more about your career journey to this day. Sure. So I don't necessarily think I have a traditional career journey into investments. I've got two degrees, one in politics and one in history, which obviously I use all the time, as you can imagine. I literally started as a temp job with Barclays after I left uni because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just joined their administration team and worked there for kind of the six month temp period. And as I often joke, I'm still doing that six month temp job nearly two decades later because it just never seemed to end. So from there, I moved into the portfolio management team, moved to London with that. I, I quite I enjoyed elements of portfolio management and I can do it. I can analyze investments and, and, and whatnot, but it was never really my thing. And very quickly within that role, my role became more operationally focused. I was much more interested in making things work, bringing things together. So I built a whole bunch of Excel spreadsheets and databases that essentially filled all the gaps of the systems that they were using at that point in time. And also I really learned a passion for managing people, managing teams and kind of bringing them together and making them work as well. And then sadly, I was made redundant from Barclays in 2016 when they just shrank down the teams, which happened, but it coincided very nicely with Karan, CEO of Wealth Colonel. Him and I had worked together at Barclays. He'd actually worked on my team when he was on the grad scheme there. And then he'd left to start Wealth Colonel with two other founders. And so when I was made redundant, it coincided with him looking just to expand the company a little bit from kind of the three of them to a few more people to start the build work. And they needed someone to head up their operations department. So I, I joined Wealth Colonel a few months after that as director of operations and have not looked back. Brilliant. And thank you for sharing that with us. And I think what I really enjoy about that is just the sort of diversity of experience and environment that you've been exposed to over the years. So I wanted to ask you a more general question about the industry and your exposure to it and what you've seen. And that is around the importance of championing inclusion, because I'm someone that, that totally believes that's super, super important in any workplace. But as an industry, how far do you think we've come? I think we've come some way. It is changing. And there's obviously there's we're, we're talking about multiple industries here with, with fin, within the world of fintech. You're talking about finance, investment and technology. And I think each is sort of on its own journey. I know that's something that you're obviously working very closely in it and, and it, it's an integral part of your work. I think it's vital for safe and welcome, welcoming environment. And I think inclusion begets inclusion. So if you can show yourself to be an inclusive environment, if you bring in people who don't look or sound or don't have the ideas that are traditionally enshrined within a certain sector, then you'll bring more people in that over time and you'll show that it can be more diverse. If you don't do that, then you stay in kind of that cookie cutter world. You know, the I think the way I would put it is I've seen the workplace this sounds really wrong, but never mind. Dedronified from when I started. You don't see everyone kind of coming into the building looking almost identical. There isn't everyone of that same background or similar background, I should say. 
within a workplace. And I think that things are much better for it. If you want to inspire people to join companies, progress down the career path, it's going back to what I was saying earlier about people never thought of investment. People also, it's very rare you're going to find a kid who says, my my dream is to work in finance. It's not uh, a train driver and, and dinosaur expert tend to prioritize over that. But if you can show that finance, technology, investment looks diverse and has people from multiple different backgrounds and ethnicities and perspectives and sexuality and that are engaged in the actual real world around them and not just in a closed subset of people that went to Eton and then went to Cambridge, then I think you can inspire people to want to come into that world. So how far have we come? Better than 20 years ago when I started, absolutely. How far have we got to go? There's still a fair way and you just have to look at the boards of the bigger firms to see that there's there's work to be done. Absolutely. And that's a great way of describing it. And I love the de-dronified part. I thought that was really interesting because actually what we're talking about is challenging a, a system and, and a network of behaviours that, that have always been. And we're really challenging that status quo. And I think a part of this is something that we've spoken about before. And it's the impact to any business when you have managers in place that probably shouldn't be managers. But perhaps they got they're the ones that got promoted for whatever reason it may be so I wanted you just to explore some of the the reasons for that with us yeah there there is absolutely an historical and to some extent understandable route that if you are good at your job regardless of what that job is and progress to a certain point that people will say right now you can manage people now you can run a team of people who do the job that you used to do or sometimes do a completely different job, but you're senior enough that you now need to be a manager. And it is such a poor way of thinking about progression. Some people are great managers who are very junior in a firm. And some people are terrible managers who are incredibly senior in a firm. We've all had a bad manager. We've all probably had more than one. And I don't think there's a magic formula to being a good manager. But in terms of what makes a bad manager, the traits that I have seen, it's the ones that we've all experienced. It's the micromanagers. It's the people who don't trust you to do your job. It's the managers who are lazy, who just delegate everything, but never really seem to be at the front line with you. Managers who are just focused on the work and expect you to be at your desk all hours, but there's no pastoral care. Those that are opaque, that no transparency, keep everything locked away. People who don't share knowledge, you don't just see that in management, you see that across firms, people who kind of learn something and then squirrel it into their own little world and will never share it. But unfortunately, when it's a manager, that's even more difficult. And and a lack of empathy is a big part of it. If they're unable to engage with you on, a, on an emotional level and kind of see the effect of work and your home and your personal life and, and all that kind of, it all comes together. You can't segregate. I'm sure some people can segregate everything, but I can't. And I don't know many people who can. You bring it all with you. So you need someone you can engage with on all of those, that multitude of things together. So in terms of what makes a, a good manager, I, I kind of boil it down to three things. There I said, there's no magic formula. Here's my magic formula. I boil it down to three things. It's solidarity, honesty, and empathy. So solidarity, if you show that you won't ask anyone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself, that if there's stress, if there's uh, 
bad day, if something goes wrong, that you're going to be there until 11 o'clock at night helping fix it if you're asking other people to do that. Honesty, obviously, you can't share everything because you get to a point where there needs to be some protection of information for one reason or another, but at least honesty to a realistic level with your team about where things are at and how things are going to progress. And then empathy, again, I keep coming back to that. It's just treating the people around you like human beings and not like your little team of uh, of emotionless soldiers who, who you can send out to do your bidding in the world. And what a wonderful way of describing all of that. Um, it's moments like this that I think, should we make these podcasts visual? Because my face throughout that was really telling that I recognised so many of the, man- the bad management that you described. But the good thing is I recognise so many of, of the good. And you're absolutely right. Like Empathy is a super important part of that. I'll probably be squirming and my face reacting to this next question as well, because we're <laughs> going to talk now about zero tolerance for banter or bro cultures in tech. And that's something I'm really excited for you to share with us. It's a topic I'm very passionate about and have often been on the the wrong end of it. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's something I'm I'm very fortunate with Wealth Colonel, with the team that Karan has built before I joined, and then the people that we have hired and across the company, that it has never been a factor of Wealth Colonel to any significant degree that I have noticed. I think part of that is who you hire, but even more importantly, it's who's doing the hiring internally. Because if you have someone that tolerates that kind of bantery, laddish culture, who's hiring and meets someone else of a similar ilk in the interview room and brings them in, that's very quickly where I think the the culture can go sour and can start to develop along that way. And that's not something which we have at Wealth Colonel. I've seen it before. I've seen it previous, my previous jobs, going right back to just temp jobs I did at uni. And I think it, it's so cool. And once, it's, once your culture has become toxic as a firm, I think it's very hard to detoxify. I think it's very hard to reverse the course. So from very early on at Wealth Colonel, and we started, and I'm non-binary, but I hadn't, realized I was non-binary at that point so when I was there we were all dudes like we were everyone as far as I was concerned as far as I knew about myself we were all men to begin with for quite a while at the beginning of the company and it used to frustrate me but it was also just a virtue of the fact that we were a small fintech firm we couldn't pay the going rate for people at that point in time we were just bringing in people who were will, who who could do what they could do so our pool of people we could hire was tiny and you and I have talked about this as well in terms of there there is a there is a diversity issue in the educational route within technology as well and that kind of needs to be fixed to give the pool the diverse pool of people you would like to be able to employ as a firm but I, I was always at the back of my mind, we're not going to allow this to become a bro culture. And as soon as we can start to diversify, we will. And we did. And as our operations compliance team and technology team grew, we were able to hire people of different backgrounds, not just gender, although we have now got, fortunately, a lot of women working for Wealth Colonel. That's brilliant. But people of different sexualities and different ethnicities, et cetera. And it's not, I say all this, none of this is saying people say, oh, no banter, there's going to be no humor, it's all serious. And it's not about that. People make fun of each other and stuff. We have a laugh. We, we're, not, we're not that particularly serious firm in any way. 
it's always my my passion to make people laugh at some point during a meeting not that they always do my jokes are not always great but i try but it's there's a right and there's a wrong side to it and it's not allowing people to become the butt of the joke or characteristics to become the butt of the joke it's not allow to allow a homogenous section of your company to become kind of the norm and everyone else to be the other so get away from that us versus them mentality within a firm, which I think can so easily develop. Super, super helpful pieces of advice there and, and just how that's been implemented and, and what to look out for. And taking that even further, I wanted you to share with us your decision, as you describe it, to be loud and out and <laughs> what that's done for people in the industry. Because this to me is, I call, whenever I introduce this podcast, I say we're here to walk the talk. You're walking the talk with everything you've just said there around banter and bro cultures and what you're doing to make sure that things are appropriate within the office. And now when you're about to share with us your journey of coming out, I think that would be a great story for people to hear how they can walk the talk. No, uh, sure. I Honestly, I'm not sure what it actually does, like to be loud and out. I, I hope what it does is it shows people that you can look and act and be different to what might have been expected historically in this industry especially in finance and investment but with tech as well but i i think you know that there is no normal anymore i've always been out about my sexuality i'm bi or pan depending on your preferred terminology i'm easy with either and i've always been out about that at work right from the beginning but certainly when i joined barclays there was an expectation of suit and tie for someone who was assigned male at birth, such as myself, with shiny shoes and all that stuff, even though I was just working in an admin department and never saw a client. It's like nuts, but there you are. This is what you have to wear. This is the only way you can acceptably do work is to be very uncomfortable all day. But I, and I started little things just to promote myself as to how I am with nail varnish, which I've always worn, and then slowly dropped the tie and the jacket and shirts that were different colors and things and just kind of started to be like this is who I am and and of course I was fortunate or lucky in that I was good and became quite integral to parts of the job so and I think that helps I think when you can be that person you can get around some of the rules or some of the expectations in place but yeah well we need them so yeah if they, if, if they can do what they want to be who they want at that point so I think now as a COO and kind of part running a company along with some others, being who I am, being out like this, I don't want anyone to feel like they can't be themselves within Wealth Kernel and, and within the wider industry. I don't want anyone to feel, oh, I'd love to dress like that, or I'd love to talk about myself like that, or talk about my partner who's the same gender as I am or who is trans or or share my, you know, um symbols of my faith or whatever within the i'd love to do those things but i don't feel i can because it is this one culture or it's not expected or there's a dress code which makes no sense etc yeah and part of and when i realized i was non-binary i'm very lucky that a welcome i was literally able to put a post on slack and say i've had this realization about myself and this is who i am and these are my pronouns now and then i've kind of i've changed my name and stuff and I'm, you know, again, I'm lucky to be in a firm where everyone kind of went, cool, no worries, CJ. And everyone's kind of tried to just mesh in with that. And again, I hope if anyone else in the firm who we have now 
who maybe hasn't got on that journey yet but might do in the future or people we hire i'm sure we'll hire other trans people in the future and and that will just allow them to say oh i could be out at work maybe they can't be out at home maybe they can't be out to their families but at work they could be because it's a safe place for them to be themselves it makes me feel so proud that we've got spaces in this industry where we can say that this is a safe space and that that needs to be more common. So thank you for sharing that story. And it takes me to my final question, which really leans again on the whole walk the talk concept, because anyone listening to a podcast like this, I want them to feel empowered and educated on what they can go and do within their workplaces. What would you like to see more of from the listeners for genuine workplace inclusion? So obviously I could talk about kind of the protected characteristics area. Under the Equalities Act, I can talk about those. And obviously, I'm personally very passionate about gender and sexuality because those are things to me. I can't talk about what it's like not to be white or not to be able-bodied. And I would be very passionate or to be a woman or a non-binary person who's assigned female at birth. And I want to bring more people in to, to have those conversations. But something that I am, that's kind of aside from that, but I think is just as important, is people from different educational backgrounds. And to be clear, I'm a big supporter of education. I'm grateful. I, 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 I was, had the opportunity to get two degrees and enjoyed doing both of them. But the bias that I have seen towards having a degree, even once someone is decades out of uni age, to me is just nonsensical. And I think there is, there's definitely parts of the industry, not Wealth Colonel, I'm pleased to say, but definitely parts of the industry where there's still an old boys culture when it comes to educational background and institutions, especially if you look at the big names out there, oh, well, did they go there? Or oh, I know them from here, or I knew they were in the same, I know we don't have fraternities here, but the same, that, that kind of culture, which I think is just so problematic and just begets a lack of inclusion. Some of the most capable, intelligent, valuable people that I work with don't have a degree, didn't go to uni because they didn't want to or they couldn't. And honestly, I think if we can, this is, I'm being careful here, this isn't to say that you shouldn't strive to get the best education you can and to learn as much as you can before going into work. But I think we that can very quickly become, oh, well, you might have 15 years of experience, but you didn't study this thing when you were 18. And therefore, are you as, do you, what skill sets are you missing because of that? And often the answer is none. So it's largely, as I've hired more and more people, it's become one of the last things I look at in CV. I'm much more interested in what have you done, what are you passionate about, where, who are you as a person than I am about that area. And I, there's loads of ways we can continue to promote genuine workplace inclusion. But I think that way, I think you really do start to get people from different backgrounds within society. Because this is the old socialist in me coming out here, who's uh, very disappointed with the, my 20 years in finance. But the one element of, of diversity inclusion we rarely talk about is economic background and the, the dirty word in the UK, class. And I think that is something that definitely needs to be focused on. Absolutely. And what a brilliant way to draw this podcast to a close. I thank you so much for sharing your journey, your culture, your environment at Wealth Kernel. It's been an absolute privilege learning so much. And I know that there's so many things that people can take away from this and go and implement straight away. So thank you for joining us on the DEI Discussions podcast series.